There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And Charlie, it is throwback summer. And mm. today we are throwing back to 1964. Oh, way back. Way back. To listen to a track from the Motown group Martha and the Vandellas. It's dancing in the street. Sunglasses on, t-shirts on, flip-flops on, top down. Oh my gosh. I have so much that just popped up about this. <laughs> wow. All right, all in due time, Charles. We are reaching back to this 60s Motown classic in order to unlock how this song, as you say, just like lights you up as you listen to it. Yeah. Uh, but also to explore the surprising history, the surprising afterlife hmm. of this song. So in the first half... We're going to break down the genesis and the magic behind Dancing in the Street. In the second half, we'll see what it became. Ooh, cool. Okay, I, I'm so excited because I honestly have not listened so closely to this track. It's almost always kind of in the background on the radio or something. I didn't grow up with it, obviously. And upon just one listen, I was like, oh my gosh, I just heard so much musical history. I'm so excited to break this down. So where do you want to take us? Good. Let's go right to the very start to a staff songwriter at Motown, which was very much modeled in the assembly plant fashion. Hmm. You know, Barry Gordy consciously was invoking Henry Ford really? at the Motown studios. Pump them out. So we have the staff songwriter ivory joe hunter brings this tune in to a session hmm. that's kind of the bones of what we just heard dancing in the street yeah but it's different it's melancholy it's kind of a blues kind of a down tempo thing hmm. two other motown stalwarts mickey stevenson and marvin gay no yeah workshop the song huh and turn it into dancing in the streets Ooh. let's listen one more time so once the team had this song in place they needed a singer and the singer was Martha Reeves and her backup singers, Annette Beard and Rosalind Ashford. Oh, they're good. They had cut a few hits for Motown, like Heat Wave. Hmm. But Martha actually started as a secretary 
in the Motown offices. What? Yeah, as she was no working way. towards her big break. Wow. Yeah, the Vandellas took their name from a street in Detroit called Van Dyke Street <laughs> and the singer Della Reese. Mm-hmm. Van Dyke, Della, Vandella. Ooh. That's how their name came together. So a very local phenomenon. Yet becomes a national summer hit. Yeah, exactly. I want to see how this happens. I mean, you get the sense that Motown was a family. I mean, in a way, Marvin Gaye, in making this song, was repaying them a favor because Martha and the Vandellas sang backup vocals on one of his first big hits, Stubborn Kind of Fellow. I mean, when you're getting that kind of vocal support, you got to pay it forward. Absolutely. You need a lead. Yeah. Yeah. And Gay even went so far as to play drums and percussion on Dancing in the Street. No way. Wow. Yeah. So this was a real family affair. Huh. Now, you're thinking of this song, and I think as soon as it starts, you're starting to groove. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, the first thing that I noticed is that underlying it is this sort of just core bass vamp that just keeps running throughout yes i almost was like whoa this could be like sampled into a break beat and played in like modern hip-hop almost i kind of had assumed that like a lot of motown tracks especially of this era were more harmonically like a lot more harmonic movement a lot of chord choral changes but this is like almost like proto james brown bass vamps yeah no this is powerful stuff i mean we have such a heavy backbeat let's just listen again and just focus in on that powerful like tambourine and snare sound we hear on every two and four <laughs> it's like the tambourine is the solo instrument. Yeah, exactly. More instead of more cowboys, more tambourine. They got this sound that it's so intense and driving. They got this by recording the tambourine part in what they called the Motown echo chamber, which was actually a hole in the bathroom. <laughs> Wait, okay. Quick story. I definitely once got to go into uh, Westlake Music Studios where uh, Michael Jackson recorded a bunch of his albums and literally like the core thumb snaps that he uses on his tracks with Quincy Jones were done in a bathroom and I definitely (laughs) went in that bathroom and snapped my fingers and got a recording on my phone and I will definitely play it for you. (laughs) That's great. Okay, so part of a long lineage of of bathroom recording studios here. Yes, yes. Great reverb. But that's how they got that effect that sounds almost like this thunderous backbeat kind of powering you through the song. Hmm. So we've got this like driving rhythm underneath. And then on top, we have Martha Reeves' vocal. This was the second take of the song. Hmm. The first take, she nailed it, apparently, (laughs) but they hadn't pressed record. So the second take, she was a little peeved. And I think Uh. you can hear that in her vocals. Yeah. Uh, At certain points in the song, she puts a little anger into it that really drives it home. It doesn't matter what you wear. Just as long as you are 
That is fierce. Yeah, just leaving it all on the floor. I do got to ask you, though, like talking about leaving it all on the floor, at this point in recording technology, are the entire band performing at the same time with the vocalist? Like, is this a live take? Yeah, this is all happening live. Oh, wow. There might be a few overdubs, yeah. uh, like the tambourine, for instance. Right. But yeah, the band is mostly all playing live. And so a lot of that big room sound we're getting, which was really popular in that era and obviously sort of known as the wall of sound, was that intentional or is that happening just because that's what it takes to record that many people and that much sound in that big of a room? So you get that in the background. Uh, I guess that's kind of a chicken or egg question. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Motown was definitely channeling the wall of sound production technique where you just have this sort of dense, unending texture of all these different orchestral instruments playing at once. Uh, you can hear that on tracks like The Crystals' Da Do Ron Ron. feels like it has this like jazz big band feel right because there's just so many instruments filling a giant room with only probably a handful of mics capturing all the sound so you're getting all that room noise and reverberation i really particularly see it in my mind i don't know if you saw the beach boys biopic love and mercy but there were some really wonderful scenes of the recording of pet sounds which uses a lot of that same sort of technique and they're just in this big room, but everybody's just stuffed together around a few mics. Great reference and awesome movie to see. Totally. You get the feeling of the excitement and the energy of the performance coming through your speakers 50 years later. But we've already dove into the musical aspect of what makes this song so effective. Let's kind of rewind and think about what this song is actually saying. In some ways, it's mm. a very simple message. It's a summertime party anthem. Boys <laughs> yeah. and girls get out and dance in the street. But there's also some very specific references going on, like at points in the song, they call out different cities across mm. the country, Chicago, New Orleans, New York City, Baltimore. Hmm. <laughs> Such a classic way. Uh, it's a little bit of pandering calling out every single city, but it works. Yes, yes. And it's a technique. I wonder if they're not borrowing from a song that had come out a few years earlier, Night Train by James Brown, hmm. which similarly kind of goes through uh, a musical atlas of the United States. Florida! <laughs> <laughs> So I was totally wrong. I had called out sort of a proto-James Brown reference, but this is the era of James Brown, and they're definitely comping from it. It's great. Yeah, and it's worth noting the cities they're naming here. Chicago, New Orleans, yep. New York, Baltimore. Yep. It's not, say, Salt Lake City or uh, <laughs> Portland, Maine. They are consciously broadcasting to African-American cities across the country. 
trying to connect with both their musical and frankly their economic audience. You right. know, these are the same cities that the Motown stars would go on tour. Oh, yeah. So they're trying to build that connection with their fans and their audience. So it's a wonderful, you know, musical choice to have these cities that you can picture as you're listening, but it's also a very calculated measure at the same time. That this is a summer jam and that it's referencing all of these cities, encouraging people to go dance in the street, it definitely further reinforces this idea that I'm hearing this vamping and this these beats that could be sampled and later used in the world of hip-hop, which started out in street parties in the summer. Ah, uh. Yeah. Okay. So you're you're talking about like the continuum of urban summer music history, I guess. Yeah. So we first we had the bathroom recording studio continuum, and now <laughs> we have the summer dance party continuum. Cool. Yes. Yes. Many continuums. Yeah, and I love that image because the last thing I want to dig into here is the way this song gives you such a feeling of release that just makes you want to dance, that hmm. makes you want to party. Hmm. And I think this is a very clever thing because it's all about the sense of stasis hmm. and then release. Ah, uh, okay, great. And that is all happening harmonically, Charles. It's yeah. all happening in the chord. So in order to hear it, we have to go back to the very beginning yeah. and we have to pay attention to where the harmony changes, the point where the underlying chords change from one to another. Okay, cool. Okay, so let's dim the music a little bit, and yeah. you and I can just uh, keep talking, Charles. Sounds good. Because for as long as we're continuing to converse, we are listening to the same harmonic chord. Right. We're listening to the same bass tonic note. It's just vamping over and over the same thing. Yeah, we're not going anywhere. We could just go on about any old subject in the world, you know, like I could ask you uh, about your health. <laughs> but then... Ah, okay, that was the moment. Now, all of a sudden, I'm not interested in whatever you had to say because we just exploded into a new harmony. Let's press pause. So what they're doing in dancing in the street is they're kind of lulling you into this single harmonic stasis point, and then they're waiting almost 40 seconds, an eternity in pop music time. I mean, yes. glaciers are moving across the continent. The, <laughs> the tectonic plates are, are breaking apart. I mean, eons is passing yep. before we get a harmonic change. It's so unusual and it's so effective. Yes. Because every time you do get that move from the tonic to the subdominant. Yeah, every time they do that, she says, uh, there'll be sweet music. Sweet music everywhere. Exactly. So music <laughs> is the release. Music gives you that sense of ascension and transcendence. Again, sort of like there's some really proto-dance music quality here where you know, in, in modern electronic music, oftentimes the sort of verse material will be fairly repetitive. So everyone's kind of doing the same dance move and like... All right, getting kind of bored, and then just at the right moment, it you know releases into a drop, and you have a whole new movement of energy. Everybody dances, takes on a new pose, and yes. I feel like this is doing the exact same thing, but Whoa. in a very different era of music. Charlie, I love it. You are all about the diachronic perspective here. <laughs> I love it. I didn't know that I was diachronic, but thank you. <laughs> Continuums 
past is present, future is then, now is everywhere. I love it. (laughs) And you will be pleased because after a short break, we are going to take this song into the future and see what became of it since its 1964 release. Cool. Take me there. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. (laughs) I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. I can't even say it without laughing, because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. When Dancing in the Street was released in 1964, it was an immediate hit. Of course it was. Look at the name. (laughs) It's his own apotheosis. And one of the great signs of sort of the lasting effect of this song is how often it's been covered. Yeah. One of the first was from an unlikely source, The Mamas and the Papas. Let's just take a quick listen to their version of Dancing in the Street. Very different approach, right? Very kind of sparse. Oh, but really great payoff when they go into the music moment. Yes. Oh. Okay, so I think that the bass vamp here is really strange. They've altered it in a way which has like a twanginess to it, but there's some really great payoff with that awesome drum fill that leads into the chorus, that heightened moment. So it's even more reductive in the beginning and then pays off more in the end, a certain degree. Yes, so this is a radical reinterpretation of the song. And this song just has even more in store for it because if we fast forward to the ensuing decade, the 70s, we're going to find the Grateful Dead incorporating this into their epic free jam jazz exploration sets. So 
this is totally appropriate considering everybody in Following the Dead is tailgating in the parking lots of stadiums, so they're all dancing in the street. Yes, and beyond fitting the aesthetic of the dead, this song actually helped open the whole musical approach of the band up to more free-form improvisation. Hmm. It's the same thing we analyzed in the first half of the episode, I think, this sense of having this harmonic stasis for so long at the beginning of the song. Uh. That laid a groundwork for the band to improvise extended phrases and play off each other without having to worry about like getting uh, harmonically dissonant because yeah. there was just this yeah. underlying single harmonic structure huh. but then when it explodes up into the other chord change then it has a real great payoff in a awesome guitar solo i imagine yes exactly so there's those improvisatory peaks and then you can sort of explode together back into the structure of the song yeah, yeah. so it's very flexible in that way so it's interesting i think mm. dancing in the streets played a not insignificant part in the grateful dead's evolution hmm. interesting we zoom forward another decade and we find perhaps a pair of surprising covers of this song, one by the band Van Halen. Somehow managing to identify a, a hard rock hair metal aesthetic within the song. Wow, that is frenetic. I know. It makes me realize that every single time someone says that you're coming up dancing to a brand new beat, the song is inviting reinterpretation because they can't play it the exact same way or else they're not meeting the promise of their cover. Yes, I totally agree. But <laughs> I think it's worth noting, too, that it's like this song somehow has a flexibility to be stretched into yeah. all these kind of different styles and still be effective. Yeah. There's something unique to its skeleton that somehow allows all these different interpretations to work, including <laughs> one uh, also from the 80s that was a, a huge hit by Mick Jagger and David Bowie. Huh. This was recorded for Live Aid, so huh. they substituted cities around the world. This is Ooh. a global dancing in the streets. Huh. So once again, in the capable hands of Jagger and Bowie, this song comes to life. It's surprisingly resilient, but hmm. in looking at all these covers, we're just looking at one side of the story because dancing in the streets has another tale to tell as well. Huh. And that's as an unlikely protest anthem. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, that's a, that, it makes a lot of sense, getting out in the streets and raising your voice. Exactly. This song alighted from a party song when it was released in 1964 to, over the course of the increasingly fraught politics of the 60s, becoming this more almost militant anthem embraced uh -huh. by uh, SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, during 
the 1960s. It was played during riots and protests in major American cities during 1966 and mm. 1907. It was mm. fully endorsed by these groups as an anthem mm. of resilience and consolidation of the larger struggle. Wow. So this song was not just a party song. It was a political song. I really love that this became a song of resilience at the same time because there is an incredibly joyful experience of people marching and fighting for their rights. Something which is, you know, fights for justice are overwhelmingly serious and important. And yet the experience of the community building that happens in those moments is also extremely special. And there is a celebratoriness in it. So I love that it contains both of those qualities. Yes. No, Charlie, I think you've struck something too that's an interesting reminder that music that accompanies protests isn't always angry or demanding. It's often an expression of collective joy. Yeah. And this song is a perfect example of that. I mean, it corresponds. So now to return to your your obsession with the continuum <laughs> of past and present. Yeah. You know, if we fast forward to some of the songs that have materialized as anthems for a current generation of civil rights protesters, of Black Lives Matter demonstrators, we'd find songs like All Right by Kendrick Lamar. Right. We gonna be all right. Extremely upbeat song. I mean, very affirmational. But then if we widened our lens even further, we'd find other surprising songs. You can watch videos made in war-torn regions like Yemen, mm. shot by uh, survivors literally amidst the debris of fallen buildings. Mm. And these videos, these compilations of people dancing are all set to one song. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. Because I'm happy. Clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Get out of here. That's amazing. Yes, happy is another one of these unlikely anthems that maybe started as, you know, just <laughs> a song, just the exploring the euphoria of, of momentary joy. And then somehow in these surprising situations became this anthemic glue to hold people together in times of crisis. So I think it's both these songs are reminders of how the, the politics of protest and the politics of joy can also and often collide. In Happy, a lyric that could be read entirely differently, just like dancing in the streets could also be protesting in the streets. Here he says, in Happy, clap along if you feel like a room without a roof. And in war-torn countries where literally people's homes are being taken away from them, it's I mean just stunning to think that this can be read in another way but uh, sort of this celebratoriness of still overcoming the human condition even when you've lost your home. Right, right. That's not just a metaphor anymore. No. Yeah. Wow. So dancing in the street, this uh, celebratory summer jam from 1964 has radiated out into our culture mm. and frankly around the world, I think, in all these surprising ways that no one could have imagined when they were putting it together in yeah. one of the Motown studios in 1963. Marvin Gaye, Ivory Joe Hunter, Mickey Stevenson, Martha and the Vandellas cutting this track 
it's stunning after you know hearing stories of playing the tambourine in the bathroom <laughs> what the destiny of this kind of humble summer splash slash commercial appeal <laughs> to Motown fans has turned into wow well, I really love what you've done here as well because you've taken the idea of the Song of Summer, which you know kind of has this like really light-hearted sort of bubblegum quality, right? And yet expanded to show that the summertime is the time for communal gathering of all kinds, mm. both of joy and struggle. And so that Songs of Summer might say something more than just let's have a party. I had never considered that before. And I really like that you've brought that here. Thanks, man. And, you know, it comes back to that harmonic shift, I think, because <laughs> that sense of release oh, that can... Stasis to relief. Yeah, I mean, that can take so many forms. Like you said, it could be yeah. like, where does the kind of joy of, of a party end and the joy of a, I don't know, political party <laughs> begin? <laughs> wow. Really cool. Charlie, thanks so much for dipping back into the summer vault with me. We will be back in two weeks with another episode. Switched on Pop is produced by me, Nate Sloan. And me, Charlie Harding. This episode, as always, was edited and mixed by the brilliant Bill Lance. Designed by Luke Harris, we are a proud member of the Panoply Network. You can find more of our shows on the Apple Podcast app on Stitcher, Spotify, any podcast player you so desire. You can get in touch with us on Twitter at SwitchedOnPop. We love getting recommendations and having conversations with you. You can also email us at contact at switchedonpop.com. Again, we're going to continue some fun summer jams through the summer every two weeks. So we'll catch you then. Until then, thanks thanks for for listening. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex.